I wonder how you're doing. It's hard to tell, right? In a, a kind of inhabiting the archetypal Buddha pose, generally looking more or less serene, steady. But who knows? There have been moments during the day of some steadiness and serenity, interspersed no doubt with all kinds of other moments, moments of being caught in various concerns, moments of mind bouncing back and forth between different ideas. Hmm. The the way the stuff of other times and places and relationships and circumstances of life might crash in. And it's very easy when finding ourselves confronted by anything, basically, by any kind of thought stream, any kind of emotional movement, very easy when confronted by any kind of feeling of friction with ourselves or friction with life, friction with our experience in any moment, very easy to imagine something's wrong. It shouldn't be like this. Or I shouldn't be like this. Or the person in front of me shouldn't be like this. And in a way, maybe that's a a defining characteristic of our dissatisfaction or our struggle or our unease or our confusion in life. Whatever the issue is, whatever the struggle is, whatever the dissatisfaction is, it has sort of at its core the sense that it shouldn't be like this. And in a way, that, just that line has a lot of room in it for investigation. One of the most, um, maybe some of you have heard me say this before, but I, I feel like you know, the one there was one central insight, one central thing I could somehow magically really communicate to Dharma students, it would be that there's no wrong experience. There is no thought that shouldn't arise. There is no feeling that shouldn't be felt. There is no experience that shouldn't happen. And yet, when confronted by all kinds of experiences, particularly the ones we don't like, right? but actually even sometimes the ones we do like, 
So when something unpleasant arises, it's easy to feel, oh, it shouldn't be like this. But sometimes even something very pleasant can arise. We mentioned sort of fantasy life that can spring up in meditation yesterday. We might be very attracted by the fantasy, and yet they also, oh, it shouldn't be like this. I'm supposed to be meditating. So on the one hand, I just want to kind of lay out just that little bit of vision of a relationship with life where one knows and feels and re- what's happening and responds to one what's happening, knowing that there's no wrong experience. Of course, maybe plenty of ways that we might feel moved to, re- to respond or rather react to experience that wouldn't be very skillful, that we might want to rein in. But nothing that shouldn't arise. No wrong thought, no wrong feeling, no wrong mind state, no wrong meditation, no wrong you. And we might ask them, well, if that's true, and it may sound true to you, or maybe one just hopes it's true, maybe one knows from various experiences one's had a kind of ease or harmony with life, wherein the truth of that might stand out. But whether it sounds true or not, it's often hard for us to see or know that there's no wrong experience. Because... As experience comes to us, it tends to be filtered through a lot of layering that we do. We mentioned some of those layers last night, right? Experience comes to us layered over by our views. Our views, for example, of right or wrong experience. Our views of what should or shouldn't be happening. You can see that playing out in any theatre of our, any arena of our life. You can certainly see it playing out just in being here in silence together. In this very simple activity. Right? I'm not trying to tell you what your mind should, should be like or your body should be like. We're just saying, hey, come, sit quietly, hang out, see if you can breathe. After some time of sitting quietly, walk quietly. There's no shoulding in there, no need to should on oneself, as one of my friends calls it. And yet we can see how experience arises layered over, covered over, distorted by. Various views. The way experience uh, gets layered over by they're kind of sifting everything into what I like and don't like. And the sort of mad attempt, pathological attempt, to have just pleasant things happen and not have any unpleasant things happen. 
You might say to ourselves, well, why is that a pathological attempt? That's exactly what I'd like in life. And yet, what's the longest period of time you've ever succeeded? Right? How many moments? Maybe if we're ambitious, let's say minutes. Maybe, maybe you can think of some wonderful time when minutes stretched even into hours. But fundamentally, whatever our uh, situation, whatever our relationship situation, whatever our political situation, whatever our financial situation, whatever our situation, the, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of life kind of just comes at us in waves. Again, just cast your mind back over the not quite 24 hours since you've been here. And yet, the layering over of that natural flow of experience, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes neither one or the other, right? Neutral. The way in which we kind of start to push and pull rather tiringly, rather stressfully, trying to get everything all up one end, called pleasant, and trying to push away everything down the other end of unpleasant. And then, more significant than the natural flow of pleasant and unpleasant, becomes the the layering itself, the struggle with. And so then we've got all the, the, the struggle of desire and devotion, plus all the layering of the struggle with our ideas, what it means about me. It means something about me if I'm having a pleasant time or not a pleasant time. We compare ourselves with others, and that seems to mean something about me. And then we look at these serene and steady-looking Buddhas and assume they're all having a pleasant time because they're kind of sitting like this. And then increasing the sense of difficulty or separation or isolation or loneliness, reinforcing some uh, problematic sense of self. Right? That's the other form of layering we spoke about last night, this, the self-concern. Making it all about me. And we have some taste, maybe in life in general, maybe particularly in an environment like this where we're kind of simplifying things and really opening our senses up in a very kind of immediate, sensory, pleasant, present moment way. We might have a sense sometimes of just the kind of vastness of life, the freely unfolding nature of life, the way in which birds just sing and rain just falls and breath just breathes and life just does its life thing. And yet, other than when those moments feel particularly open and available to us, we see how strong the habit is to reduce all of that basic, vast and free nature of things to a lot of self-concern. Wherein there's so much of that layering, the me, me, me layering, what Buddha calls the I, me, my layering, that it permeates everything. My meditation, my mind states, my body, 
in a way in which it gives us a kind of very narrow or confined, constrained feel of life. A life confined to a concern with oneself. And so, we, one way we could look at this practice is as, as, as an opportunity to undo that layering, to um, to drop beneath, we might say, that layering, to gain some independence from that layering. That layering, which is so habitual that we don't we don't call it that. We don't say, "Oh, I'm, there I go, layering self-concern onto my experience." Right? We just say, "Oh no!" We just kind of hear the, the the language and the feel and the drama of that self-concern, and we think that's you know that's what's happening. The, the the layering that's happening, like we said again last night, in the kind of this abstract realm, turning around the familiar habits of, of concern, turning around the familiar views, turning around the familiar uh, desires and uh, rejections of what we like and don't like. And so this, what we described earlier as yoni so manisikara, right? embodied attention, that's the, the sort of the, the ground layer of getting some space from the habitual, abstract layering that we do on our experience. And it's... um, One can't underestimate the potency of that. And it may be today, first day of the retreat, or it may be generally where you kind of find yourself most often in your practice, meditation practice or or more broad spectrum, kind of general mindfulness practice, it may be that much of what you're doing is just waking up to having been caught in some or other layering that you may or may not even recognise as layering. You might just recognise it as, oh, caught in in thought or lost in fantasy or, or whatever it might be. And then the process is one of just every now and then, and sometimes it can feel like more then than now, and every now and then noticing that's what's happening and oh, and trying to re-establish some, some kind of embodied attention without even knowing quite what that is. But something about, what did he say? Feeling the body from the inside. Something about sensing the breath. And then we come back and we kind of try and build a little bit of relationship with that. Oh yeah, breath's happening. Oh, yeah, expansion and relaxation. And expansion. And that reminds me. And da, 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 not off again, right? And if that's the case, certainly when we start to hear about these kind of those more cause of cosmic dimensions of meditation, it can feel rather discouraging. It can feel rather, you know, I was hoping for something esoteric, and all I've got is wandering mind and achy knees. So, and yet, there's the guy at the front saying, hey, there's no wrong experience. Maybe wandering mind and achy knees 
are an important part of the process. Maybe wandering mind and achy knees have themselves something of an invitation to them. And if it's the case that we find ourselves, as I just described, right, finding that we've been caught up, regardless of where we've been caught up or how we've been caught up or what we've been caught up in or how long we've been caught up for, because it doesn't matter, right? If you, know, if you get into a lot of self-concern, where did I go? It's like we, the example this morning of the clouds. Right? Once the sun's come out from behind the clouds, why well, fret about what the kind of clouds they were and how grey they were and how big they were and how long they lasted. So that's our experience of just the noticing and returning, noticing and returning. And if there's a tendency to get discouraged around that, i.e. to generate a lot of self-concern about it, I want to just point out how something more important, more potent than you might realise is happening in that process. That we're actually laying the ground of yoniso manisikara. We're actually finding out and it's, a, it's an art, it's a skill that all of us actually need to learn. We don't learn it naturally in the, in the kind of basic psychological evolution of becoming a more or less well-adjusted adult. We learn all kinds of great stuff. But we don't really learn embodied attention. We learn actually the opposite. We learn how to abstract our attention. We learn how to conceptualize. We learn how to imagine and those are really great skills, but that's as far as most people actually get with their, the skill of how to use their mind. And sometimes we learn it within specific realms. Right? So sometimes people who uh, do sport, for example, or music, or art, or other realms, where we feel a certain... Uh, oneness with the activity or a certain absorption in the activity. And that can give us a taste of a truly embodied attention. And yet it's a little different than the embodied uh, attention of meditation itself because the embodied attention is directed towards a particular activity, right? directed towards the engagement with the, the music one's playing or the sport that one's doing or, or whatever it might be. And the embodied attention that we're pointing to in meditation isn't pointed out at any activity. It's pointed actually um, back on itself, we might say. It's so that this embodied attention itself becomes like the ground or of experience or the space, we might say, within which experience arises, or the light, we might say, in which experience is seen. So, if your practice feels like one of um, establishing that ground, establishing and re-establishing and re-establishing that kind of space in which to meet experience, Wonderful. 
Please don't be discouraged by that. Please don't see that as a wrong experience or worse, see it as some kind of failure of your practice. The difficulty when we hear about embodied attention, we think, okay, well, you know, that's what I want then. And until I get that, then, then you know, I'm just flailing around inwardly. Well, maybe, but it's good flailing. And the more we can just let ourselves engage with that sincerely, without second-guessing ourselves, without uh, making ourselves wrong, without uh, getting discouraged, without imagining that something else, something different should be happening, the more easily we can establish that ground. It's not something uh, particularly subtle or esoteric or difficult to establish. Because the fact is, you're here. The fact is, attention, or mind we might say itself, mind is embodied. Mind isn't somewhere else, actually. Right? You might conjure in our in our uh, our attention might conjure images of somewhere else, but where do those images actually arise? Right here. You've never managed to be anywhere else in your whole life. You've never managed to be anywhere other than here. All experiences here. Thoughts arise of far past and future. Thoughts arise of here and there. So we're not trying to produce something strange. We're actually aligning ourselves with the way um, life is. It's right here. aligning what we, what we call mind, what we call body, what we call attention, in such a way as to know what it, this sense of the space in which experience can be known, the ground in which experience arises. That ground, which is then... Um, and the tradition in Pali word is sati sampajanya. That, that term has, has increasingly and most commonly been translated by this word mindfulness. Right? But mindfulness has gone wild in the, in the general culture now. So I hesitate in a way to use mindfulness these days too much when describing this practice just because there's so many different associations with mindfulness that I'm not even I'm not sure anymore what you understand when I say mindfulness so but interesting then sati sampajanya I like to call it presence or if I fill it out more because there's not really any single word that's very adequate I would rather call it this ground of knowing and seeing experience as it is. This ground of embodied attention. Or this space in which experience can be met, known, explored. Feels like it's getting dark in here, is it? Could you put the lights on at the back?
Don't be shy. Turn them up. Yeah. Thank you. So then what does, what does this, this ground of embodied attention, what's the point? Sounds very good to be mindful. Everyone's telling us these days we should be mindful. But why? What, what, does, my, what does that ground uh, really allow to happen? Firstly, that we, we actually start n- noticing our current state. We start n- noticing in ever-growing, deepening, more subtle ways what our experience is telling us, what body is telling us. And often we sort of, this body seems to be just this, this thing uh, that we're that's carrying our feverish thoughts around, body as a brain taxi, sometimes had it called. But as we settle in, yoni so, right, this kind of an attention that's grounded deep in our embodied experience, our embellied experience, which we might rather, maybe instead of mindfulness, for this purpose, let's call it bodyfulness, Bellyfulness. Actually, that's a good translation from yoniso, right? Embellied, embelliedness, bellyful, bellyfulness. Yes, I don't think I've got much of a chance of changing the cultural direction from mindfulness to bellyfulness. But hey, and in this sense, as we as we kind of. Uh, feel our way into and learn to establish and settle to some degree in a bellyful attention. We, we increasingly discover that that which we've called body, which we've sort of related to body as a thing, is a kind of a sort of field of sensitivity. And sometimes that field of sensitivity just shows up as the basic aliveness of sensation, which itself shows us, tells us something. Tells us something about the, the kind of fluid, vibrant, alive nature of experience. And sometimes we can really use that embodied attention just to listen to that aliveness. The, the kind of mystery of the fact that we're just, there's life here. The consciousness is on, that body's doing its thing, that the whole show is just kind of happening by itself. It's actually quite miraculous that heart is beating and that breath is breathing and that blood is moving and that cells are cellularizing, whatever they do. And we start to notice then some of the layering that's happening. Start to notice some of the habitual tension patterns, the sort of postures in which we hold ourselves. And when some of that self-concern is there, or when some of the layering of the desires for the pleasant or the rejection of the unpleasant, etc., is producing itself, 
we start to notice that. Not on the complex, abstract, story-filled layer of our thought streams, but actually on this more elemental layer of just feeling the, the, the pull towards of a desire. Or feeling the certain kind of the way in which, as, we, as some view takes birth and starts to reinforce itself, some view about how I am, some view about how things should be, etc. And you start to feel the way, energetically, physically, viscerally, there's a certain um, contraction. And we might feel that contraction in some particular location, right? The sort of tensing of the shoulders or the caving in of the chest. We may feel it as just a general sense of this vast, free, and naturally unfolding life getting sort of compacted and contracted into a certain form. Contracted in such a way that the sense of me starts to seem more real and solid. And the sense of things or the world starts to seem more real and solid. And in the noticing of those various tensions or postures or contractions, we start with that to know and see and feel the possibility of relaxing. Or we might express that slightly differently, saying that in the noticing of those tensions, we're able to notice them with just a kind of intimate gentle interest which allows the tensions themselves to relax and we might find the progression of our practice in that sense to be one of a progressive sense of relaxing relaxing into embodied attention relaxing into being here relaxing into this life. Relaxing in such a way that we start to taste a sense that there's no wrong experience. And in some ways it might seem simplistic to point to the liberating fruits of this practice as relaxation. But the feel, as we, as, we, as we experience a liberation from some of this layering, the way that tastes is, that doesn't make sense, it tastes relaxing, I was going to say, I'm not sure that quite fits, but the, the feel of that liberation it's not that somehow uh, we, ha- we get a freer mind in an abstract sense, right? Like we say, mind isn't off somewhere to be freed. The, 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 the way, the, the feel of a mind that frees up of some of its compulsion or contraction or fixation, the way that feels is, oh, feels like a, an ease, an ease that we can taste, Viscerally, an ease that we can trust increasingly, an ease that we can relax into. And so the encouragement, as we establish the ground 
of presence, the ground of embodied attention, to, to really listen to the buzz, to the tingle of basic um, bodily life. And of course it might sound, that might sound quite nice, right? Oh yeah, let me feel the buzz of bodily life and relax, relax. And yet, of course, I know that sometimes it's not like that on retreat. First day, body can show up in all kinds of ways that appear problematic. Just the discomfort of sitting for some time. And you know, day one, discomfort can be there. Day two, discomfort will probably be worse. Day three, probably worse again. And then you might start to get a little more used to the posture, softening into things. I, I, not, I certainly notice that in the beginning parts of a retreat, if I'm sitting, despite you know some decades and decades of sitting now, still when I sit quite intensively many hours a day, the first days, the certain heat and density and discomfort level can be quite high. So what do you do? What do you do with that discomfort? Do you go down the, the usual route? The usual route of having the, uh, this dra- dramatic relationship with pleasant and unpleasant play itself out? Do you go down the usual route of layering a lot of views about yourself and about how things should be, etc., etc.? Or do you let that discomfort be your practice? Do you study that discomfort? I don't mean study in an, in a conceptual, intellectual way. I mean study in an embodied way. We don't really write this on the posters, but very much of Dharma practice, not just meditation practice, but the whole, very much of Dharma practice is studying discomfort. Sorry about that. Doesn't sound like good marketing material, does it? And yet, we really start to see that there's a, the, the liberating fruits of studying discomfort. Why? Because we start to see increasingly finely and, and subtly the ways in which we, all that layering that I was just speaking about is so much of what's really making the discomfort difficult. And discomfort of sitting, right? And some heat, some density, some pressure. That's, that's basically what it is, right? And wherever it is, legs, back, shoulders, heat, density and pressure. And actually, if we really, really feel the heat and the density and the pressure, they're not that extreme. It's not, you know, it's a certain discomfort to it, but it's not extreme heat. It's not extreme pressure. It's not extreme density. What makes it feel so extreme 
is all that layering, right? The fussing and freaking out. And like I say, if we, like I said earlier, if we find ourselves, we've got to a point in the, our sitting, we've got to a point with our relationship with discomfort where there is no space left around it. Where all we've got is the fussing and freaking out and fretting. You know, do yourself a favour. Change your posture. Move. Give yourself some ease. But don't be too quick to do that. And let yourself study the discomfort. Let yourself study your relationship with the discomfort. And sometimes, and you, some of many of you will know this from your from your own experience. Sometimes, really seeing something right there in the midst of some heat and pressure and uh, tension, and seeing the way there's a certain kind of contracting around it. A certain, all kinds of stories about how awful it is, a kind of energetic tightening and pushing against it. And sometimes, in a moment of really seeing that and relaxing the relationship, the whole uh, experience can transform. There's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just noticing as I'm speaking about just the the moment-to-moment relationship with bodily life. There's so much dimensionality to to that. There's 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 an infinite degree, I would say, of dimensionality to what we can learn by studying our discomfort, studying our assumptions about body, studying our relationship with body, and finding out about the the increasing possibility of relaxing into this bodily life. So, sometimes... That's just the work of our practice, right? Studying discomfort. And you can't make that study suddenly bear fruits. So you do your best. You do your best for the time of this sitting. Or you do your best while this kind of particular configuration of a certain uh, discomfort or dissatisfaction lasts. You do your best with noticing whatever the discouraging thought stream may be that's going on in the background. You do your best to tolerate it all, not take it so personally. You do your best to come back from all the additional layering. You do your best just to attend kind of sincerely, gently, patiently, kindly, And sometimes that's, that's it, right? Doing your best with discomfort. And the more we're able in a rather straightforward way to do our best with that discomfort, the more easily it gets to uh, metabolize itself, digest itself, move through, free up, cool out, relax.
It's interesting, you know, we're just reflecting on this area, just very, very basics of meditation practice, very basics of mindfulness practice, very basics of experience. And then we start to look at any area, just sitting and discomfort, and we start to uh, see how that kind of opens up and opens up and opens up. When we're not just fixated on discomfort, all kinds of other things that we can equally get fixated on, but that we can all equally start to really learn about our relationship with life. Start to learn about our relationship, like we were saying earlier with the three fields of time. To learn the way we colour our sense of experience. The way we tell ourselves particular stories. Ways we start to learn about the relationship with the future, or relationship with the past. The tendency to cut, to go one to particularly to one or the other of those. Some of us much more likely to fixate on the future. Some of us much more likely to go to the past. Some of us much more likely to get caught in analysis of the present. We start to notice. We might start to really notice the the particular colouring. Some of us are much more likely to put a, a, a to fixate on the pleasant, and some of us to fixate on the unpleasant. Same experience can produce both things, right? So we're sitting here. Some of us more likely to conjure some fantasy of something that would be lovely. And others more likely to conjure some reaction against something that's wrong. To focus on the pleasant or focus on the unpleasant. We start to learn about that. We start to learn about our own mind states. The, the, just the different flavour or colouring of those clouds we heard about earlier. And even as we get really very quite skilled at um, a presence, an embodied attention, we, and even if we let go of a lot of our uh, layering, and even as increasingly we're less caught in inner drama. Maybe, you know, plenty of you have a lot of experience in meditation, and some years of Dharma practice. It may be that you really know quite some freedom from inner drama that your practice has really taught you something about not needing to pick up the various thought streams that come along. And we see ourselves, you know, somebody, um, we see something happen that we don't like, and we see the sort of habit of getting indignant arise. How dare they do that to me? And we just see, why bother? Why bother picking up that thought? Why bother going down that road? Why bother uh, contracting my attention uh, around that story? And we're able to just increasingly to put down a lot of our self-inflated, self-concerned, uh, compulsive, indignant uh, you know, dramas. 
and to put down a lot of our inner storytelling. And yet, even when there's a lot of increasing space to put down that storytelling, mind is still quite tricky. And in, in the in the Buddhist tradition, there are these there are these particular mind states, and they're usually called, and I think it's an unhelpful name. They're usually called the five hindrances, which immediately makes them sound wrong, right? It's like immediately, I'm, here I'm, on one hand I'm saying, oh, there's no wrong experience, but there are five hindrances. <laughs> so I don't think that's a helpful name. But it's interesting the way they point to particular directions that mind tends in. And it's very interesting how mind can tend in those directions, even when there's a lot of inner space. A lot of capacity to just not make much of one's self-concerns anymore. Right? The tendency for the mind to alight on the lovely, the beautiful, the wished for. Right? The tendency to desire is so strong. And even one can be really quite present, steady, relaxed, at ease. Wonderful, you might say. Why? And one could have the taste of a certain, oh, it's wonderful to be here. Wonderful to be in meditation. And the gratitude arises, etc. And then one would say, well, why, why do anything with that? Why not just enjoy? And yet, out of that, we start to fixate on some... We start to even take the, the meditation state itself and start to project it forwards as if I'm going to start living like this. I'm going to start telling everybody else about this. I'm going to come to Guy House and teach the next retreat. And the way, even the sense of ease and freedom, it can conduce towards a kind of the, the fixation on a pleasant object, a pleasant future, a desirable self-image. And even when there's not, mu- not much uh, selfing, you might say, not much self-concern, self-reinforcement going on, how nevertheless, the un- unpleasant, even just like we were just saying about the physicality of sitting, how one can notice, even if one feels quite uninvested in it, the basic, very like biological level of disliking the unpleasant. And of course, it's actually helpful to dislike the unpleasant, right? So, like survival instinct, you know, and goes with disliking the unpleasant. It's not like as we free up in meditation that we start to abandon any discernment between pleasant and unpleasant. Right? And because of that very biological level of uh, just to, to notice how the mind can add on so the, to the dislike of the unpleasant a beginning to try, of trying to fabricate reactivity. I mention these things partly just to normalize them so that we don't make these things into a wrong experience. Having the mind contract into desire isn't a wrong experience. It's an opportunity to really to see the habits of mind. I would, I would go so far as to say that it's not a hindrance. It appears as a hindrance 
it, when we're so caught up within it that it, it sort of hijacks our attention. But as soon as we notice that it's hijacked our attention, it's not a hindrance. It's that opportunity to understand something about human mind, to understand something about the nature of experience, and to understand something about our capacity to abide more freely, more fluidly. I've spoken for a long time, but now I've started to go down this road of the five this isn't that, so I feel bad if I only speak about two of them. So, then also just the, the kind of the, you know, the energetic imbalances that can arise in meditation. Even though there's not much self-story, sometimes just the, it's like the nervous system is activated. We might call that agitation or restlessness. And sometimes... And we tend to have a propensity one way or the other. Some of us are more likely to kind of go dull, low energy, collapsed energetically. Some of us are more likely to have a nervous system that conduces more to kind of wiredness, activation, restlessness. But also helpful not to see those actually as hindrances in a way that sort of pathologizes them. Oh, I'm so restless, I'm so agitated, I'm such a this, you know got so much nervous energy or whatever and just to recognize a nervous system gets activated sometimes I can really notice there's no inner drama there's no particular concern with anything and just oh nervous system is just doing its thing I just came from San Francisco the, on was it Monday evening so just before the retreat began so you know Eight-hour time difference, eleven-hour flight, then driving from Heathrow down to here in some kind of stupor, right? and then I get here. Oh, nervous system is just doing its thing. Right? It doesn't have to be any kind of. Uh, it don't have to pathologize it. And yet, learning to attend. Mostly, I think, with that kind of restless agitation, learning to attend kindly to one's, to the energetic experience, learning to attend soothingly. It's like giving the space that we just spoke about, the space that embodied ground gives us, the space of presence to kind of just hold our experience in a way that is soothing. That's what an, a restless nervous system needs. Just like a kind of distressed baby. Right? You don't need to do something to it to calm it down. It just needs a, it needs a kind of soothing holding. Those of you who are parents or you've got nephews or nieces or something or friends with children, you know the way, quite beautiful, you just hold a, a young baby that's agitated hold it and there's something about the, the quality of holding a certain soothing gentle presence that allows it to right, to settle and similarly with the dullness you know, dullness arises for all kinds of reasons actually often we just attribute it to tiredness it's very different 
it, the feel is very much the same, right? Just like the feel of agitation may feel kind of caffeinated. The feel of a, of a dull mind can feel sleepy. And we easily get the assumption, oh God, I just so much need to sleep. But um, it's, actually, it's actually different to tiredness. It's like the, the kind of deep fog that go, comes over. If one's just tired, one doesn't, tired is like one recognizes, oh, tired, need to rest. But you don't start to do this through tiredness. You don't see people sitting around, chatting in the evening after dinner. Someone says, oh, I'm tired, I think I'm going to go to bed. Once they're tired, they don't start doing this. Right? But dull mind, really dull mind, it's like the, some kind of deep, soupy fog comes over the mind. And we kind of, it's like this energetic drop in energy and we just go really bleary. That can happen to all kinds of minds. Maybe you've been here on retreat before. Maybe you've sat there and you've opened your eyes once in meditation and you've seen the teacher sitting here. It's humbling how... Soupy mind can just get hold of the attention sometimes. And I'll maybe speak about that a little more um, tomorrow in terms of skillful ways of dealing with it. And then just lastly, the way in which, and it's usually, when in the, the sort of language of these hindrances, right, it's usually called doubt, or sometimes it's called sceptical doubt, which again I think is a little bit partial and in, in unhelpful as a term. It's, it's really... I think judgment is, covers more ground. Because it's not just about uh, doubt. It's just the tendency to kind of second-guess ourselves. To, to the tendency to kind of um, uh, make our experience problematic. And because of the layering we do, we often just don't notice it as, as doubt or judgment. We think it's the truth. Oh yes, I, I, whatever it is that we're fretting about. And interesting how even when there's not much uh, self-story going on, and this sense can be fright, quite free and open, how the seed of that mind state, right, the tendency to start analyzing or measuring can be there. Analyzing what's happening or measuring what's happening or measuring uh, the experience. And as soon as we start down the road of analysing and measuring, there's a certain, we kind of start to uh, put our experience back in the familiar boxes, evaluating the sense of self over here, evaluating the sense of an experience, and then the one here, subject, who's having an experience there, object. And the kind of um, clunky or mechanical sense of self and world, and sense of distance and separation that start to get reinforced. So, friends, you might notice any or all of this stuff happening in any given moment. And just the fact of uh, being here moment by moment in the theatre 
of our practice, in the theater of our experience. Just the fact of being here, witnessing and attending to the passage of various mind states, witnessing and tending to the comfort or discomfort of bodily life, witnessing and tending to the capacity to get caught and the willingness to come back. This, uh, the, the willingness to tend to all of that starts to build up a powerful momentum, a liberating momentum. A momentum that we may not yet recognize, in fact, the potency of. But one that increasingly really allows us the opportunity to see that there's no wrong experience. There's just this touch of life right now. Body like this. Mind like this. World like this. And that, that underneath our layering and our self-concern, the very like-thisness of our experience offers a way to engage skillfully, kindly, a way to engage more fluidly, more freely, a way to actually rest into this. An unwrong this, an open this. So, may the sincerity of your practice and the continuity of your practice and the willingness to meet your experience moment by moment through these days really be in the service of freeing things up in this way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.